Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself? Oh, not too bad. I caught a little bit of a cold this weekend. It's the back-to-school crud. Yeah, that seems to be going around. We knew that would uh, would start to surface once uh, everybody started uh, mingling together again at school. Yeah, those kids are like Petri dishes. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes them stronger, right? Yeah. I'm happy to say that it's not COVID, so we're good that, That's good. That's yeah. good. Um, yeah, it seems like it's been a little bit since we've been on. It has. Yeah, we've been super busy this summer. A lot yeah, of it wasn't like on. last summer when there was no COVID. This summer was lots of COVID, and then that other virus decided to show up, too. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but luckily, today, we're not going to talk about any viruses, right? Well, maybe not in any maybe. great de- detail, but yeah. we'll see. We you have another really know. a different topic to talk about today. Yeah. It is Fungal Disease Awareness Month. And so we have back on the show our favorite fungal expert, Dr. Andre Speck. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Welcome. Thanks for joining us again. Happy to do so. I was going to say, we had a conversation not that long ago, you're talking about the back to school viruses um, in our in our faculty meeting about uh, how there was a study a few years ago that if you have two kids under the age of seven, I think it was, in a full-time daycare, full-time school, that a, fa- a nuclear family of four, on average, has at least one person sick every single day of the year. Um, because, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have four, sometimes you have one, sometimes you have zero, but like it averages out to greater than one per day. And somebody was talking about that. And one of our faculty members, um, who has triplets in daycare (laughs) started laughing hysterically and goes, (laughs) yup. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> it, it does. It does. You feel it for sure. I I, I didn't know the scientific data behind the, behind it, but anecdotally, it certainly felt that way when the kids are young. Well, it's like the same thing as when you're a med student, the first like four weeks of the pediatric rotation, you're just sick. Um, like everybody goes through, like, I think the, the, nobody, at least nobody told me. So I felt like it was a little bit of a hazing ritual. It's like you just go to a pediatric clinic and you just get everything and you're just like constantly sniffling and have a cough while you're in uh while you're on your uh, six-week peds rotation. My mine was during like the cold and flu season, like it was right in January. So I was just like I was seeing one after another and I was just constantly sick. I think I went through something like that when I first started clinical dental assisting, like the first year of being in people's mouths all day long. I was sick all the time. And then after that, I hardly ever got sick. So my immune system must have done its thing and helped out. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing how much there, how much of a booster effect there is. I, I had read a study that was done years ago before there was a, um, a chickenpox vaccine that the rate of shingles was much, much lower in pediatricians compared to internal medicine physicians. Um, and presumably because they were like constantly exposed to the virus, they were constantly getting boosted, um, from like just natural, you know, exposure in the wild. And so I found that very interesting. That is very interesting. So as, as the corollary of that been that now they see the same as internists since the vaccines around, I haven't seen that they get repeated. And I think it'd be really interesting because I feel like anecdotally, um, Everybody always told me, like, you don't see shingles before the age of 50. And I feel like now we see shingles before the age of 50 all the time, people with no weird immune system issues. And I actually had a friend who just called me um, because their 11-year-old just had shingles. Yeah, I mean, I remember learning that if somebody was before the age of 50 and they had shingles, that you had to do all this massive workup Mm -hmm. because something was clearly wrong with them. (laughs) Yeah, now it's like we had an 11-year-old and I was like, we need to do an immunological workup. And I called my friend who's a pediatric ID physician. And she's like, yeah, no, you're fine. 
It happens. <laughs> right. Holy crud. Shingles and 11 year old. She's like, yeah, it's not common. But we get a couple of year. Like you should, you should do a CBC and stuff, but like you shouldn't, you don't need to like kill yourself doing like full genome sequencing or anything like that. If the kids have been fine otherwise, I was like, wow. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. That is crazy. Well, in honor of fungal disease awareness month, we should probably talk about that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> So um, just as a reminder for everybody out there that's listening, um, Dr. Speck, would you like to tell everyone what your role is? Sure. So I'm an associate uh, professor at uh, WashU, WashU University in St. Louis, um, where I am kind of the resident mycologist. So I, I run our, I'm, I'm a currently co-director. I was lucky enough to actually sucker in uh, a young person to do it with me um at dr john Arauso, Arauso, uh who's doing it with me but now a co-director and i've been a big part of the uh, um, um msg the micro study group and the ecmm the european federation of medical mycologists and so i'm your resident neighborhood fungal geek awesome so um how do you celebrate fungal disease awareness month do you do anything special well i uh i try to eat as much of it as possible so you know, <laughs> just try to eat as much fungus as humanly possible um and so you know definitely um definitely the mushrooms but that's kind of like the low-hanging fruit you gotta go for like fermented fruit fruit as well and then like you know lots of beer lots of wine um and all the foods that we get as a result of fungi so um they figured they're trying to eat us, so I'm just returning the favor. Yeah, eventually so they to... probably will, won't they? When we're yeah. long gone. <laughs> yeah. Good to point out that they're not all bad, right? I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, uh, we use what they can do to our benefit lots of times. Yeah, it, it, I think it's amazing to think what, how much how civilization would be different without fungi, right? So you know, we you know make a joke about beer, but like beer was fundamental to civilization, right? Mm -hmm. um, low alcohol beer is one of the reasons we were able to build cities, right? Because without low alcohol beer, which is what most beer has been throughout the society, you know, the, the, the rate of dysentery and all of that was so high that it was hard to build a city. So, you know, and food preservation, lots of sausages are actually fermented, you know, um, bread making is part of, is yeast. So it's like they're, Fungi were just such an integral part of our development as a tool using species. That's awesome. It's fun to think about history and how much fungi has impacted all of our growth as a civilization. Yeah, um, and it's a, most people don't even realize how much of how much of our food is impacted by fungi. So a lot, a decent amount of like the the meat substitutes are actually fungal protein. Uh, there's an Irish brand called Corn, spelled with a Q. Um, that I think they make their meat or quote unquote meat from fusarium, um, the the wonderful fusarium that we actually see patients infected with, and like um, bonito, which is the part of like miso soup, and a lot of the Japanese cuisine is made with aspergillus. Um, so just lots of it's just everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and our whole specialty has a, a history dating back to something with fungi, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the oncology too, right? Like, yep. uh, yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's, you know, a lot of chemotherapy, whether it's chemotherapy against human cells or chemotherapy against bacteria and other um, microorganisms, is, a lot of it comes from fungi. Very cool. Learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah good stuff good stuff so what's uh what's kind of new in the fungal infection world anything uh, uh changing here coming up or new therapeutics new approaches anything coming id weeks coming up so i figure there's going to be some new stuff coming out yeah i think uh probably the the biggest splashiest article and i think a well-deserved one was the cryptococcal work the ambition trial um, where they did the uh, 10 mg per keg ambisome treatment. Uh, I think that is really exciting. Um, 
because it you know that that makes the treatment much more feasible across the world and um it'll it's interesting to start thinking about that kind of dosing uh, approach for embosome um the other things that are interesting is that we have that uh olorafen, which is one of the it's currently in phase two trials will probably be going to the fda within the next few months um for for consideration uh for rare and uh difficult to treat molds and so that would be a that would be a really cool thing because that would be the first time when we get treatment for certain fungi so things like lamentospora or scopulariopsis that really currently don't really have a treatment uh would get a treatment so that's really exciting um and then overall the the drug development side is actually seeing a bit of a renaissance uh, right now in mycology. Uh, we're seeing a lot of new compounds being brought into the phase two, phase three world. Um, I don't know if they're all going to make it, uh, but certainly there's at least a handful of candidates that are looking really promising. So we're really, I'm really excited about the next 10 years of mycology. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I mean, it seemed like you would have, a, you know, a fair number of targets and something as complicated as a mold uh, for potential drugs, but separating them out so you don't get human toxicity is probably a difficult task. Yeah, so that's actually a really great point. And I think I, think I point out all the time is that it's not difficult to find a good antifungal. It's, it's hard to find a good antifungal that's also not a good anti-human. Um, you know, so a lot of our drugs that we use in human um human world are for human treatments for other things are actually pretty good antifungals like tamoxifen is a pretty good antifungal sertraline is a pretty good antifungal tacrolimus is a pretty good antifungal methotrexate is a pretty good antifungal um so there are there's a lot of things that actually act on it it's it's the therapeutic index that's really the difficult part of um of mycology it's getting that to be not be toxic we just had another cat sighting. I mean, I don't think it's a podcast unless we have a cat sighting. So she's like all up in my face today. I don't know what her <laughs> deal is. <laughs> um, so we've been in the throes of this COVID-19 pandemic for the last few years. Have there ever been any fungal infections that have gotten to like a pandemic scale? It, not, I don't think pandemic that I know of. Um, but there certainly have been kind of fungal related outbreaks, right? Some of the more interesting things that come to mind are kind of like the Salem witch trials, right? So that was, um, that was related to fungi. Um, there's a few things throughout the history that I, if I remember correctly, that have been kind of speculated to possibly be fungal diseases, but, um, we do get out localized outbreaks, uh, especially with, with earth disruption and things like that. Um, but the closest we can probably get to a true worldwide fungal outbreak would be the, what's currently happening with Canada Oris. Um, and if anything, we're probably not aware of what's happening with Canada Oris um, because the people who would be doing it, right, the infection prevention, the hospital epidemiologists, the, the infectious disease doctors and mycologists, we all kind of got sidelined for the last two and a half years you know not sidelined we've been otherwise preoccupied um and so i think that there it's probably gotten a little bit of a benefit to spread in the last couple of years and as we start to kind of work our way out of the covid world um we're likely to start seeing more surprising surprises coming from Canada or as we're going to see, you know, we had that publication not that long ago of several isolates that are locally acquired in the United States that are pan resistant. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty scary, right? Cause the, the mortality for Canada for a bloodstream infection is like 40%, even when you have a treatment for it. Um, and so when you don't have a treatment for it, it's probably closer to 75%. So that's a really scary uh, disease. But on the plus side, there are some experimental drugs that are kind of in that phase two, phase three world that actually do work pretty well against Aura. So 
Yeah, certainly infection prevention has had their eyes elsewhere these last couple of years. And, you know, monkeypox is another thing that's taken a fair amount of time away from what they can look at. So a lot of infection prevention measures kind of fell off a little bit, you know, whether it be surgical site infections, collapses, VAPs, maybe, you know, so it, certainly getting back to those things, I think, is going to be important. From a lab standpoint, you mentioned Canada Oris. Um how easy is it for them to identify and say that it's Canada Oris, or do they have to send it to a reference lab? Uh, you know, could any anybody be expected to know this? Uh, you know, we don't routinely get antifungal susceptibilities either in many labs, mm -hmm. so that always hinders kind of our our therapeutic uh, options when you don't have that information. Yeah, that was the big thing that probably led to Canada Oris not being recognized for a really long time. Um, most modern labs, maybe that's, that should probably be a little more circumscribed, but a lot of modern labs use, use Malditoff. Um, Malditoff has absolutely no trouble identifying Candelaurus. So if your lab is using Maldi, you shouldn't have any trouble. Uh, the original trouble came with um, Vitek. And um, I think that's, that's still a possibility if I remember correctly, although I haven't looked into Vitek because uh, we don't, we just don't use it. Um, but it's certainly a, a concern is that it gets them to identify as hemolonii and, and as um, a, a, a streptomyces at times. Again, I'm sorry, I have, a, I have clearly a, a declarative aphasia today. Uh, <laughs> because I, as I was telling you guys before we started recording is that I, we just came back with the last 48 hours from Europe with the toddler. So I am sleep deprived and jet lagged. So things are coming out a little slow. So apologies about that. No, you think you sound great. Where did you guys go? So we were in Dubrovnik uh, in Croatia, which is my, um, which is my family home. We still have a, we have a house there. Um, for those of you who've never heard of it, uh, if you watch uh, Game of Thrones uh, or the old Game of Thrones, uh, it is King's Landing. Oh, nice. uh, they, they film King's Landing in my own, my hometown, basically. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Do they have a Do they have a Game of Thrones King's Landing tour now for uh, tourists? God, do they ever? <laughs> they hundreds, hundreds of them, um, and it's just like it's it's um, it, it. You know, everywhere you go, it's like, well, this is where that scene happened. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful town. It's it's you know, it's it's several. It, it's many centuries old. It's a castle town, so it, it's a perfect place. Film something like King's Landing. That's awesome. Yeah. What did your toddler think of all of it? Oh, she had a blast. She was running around, and she 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 has a thing for fish. She loves fish and turtles and aquatic animals of all sorts. So she we took her to the aquarium there, and she had a she had a blast, and she was trying to you know look at the rays, and she was jumping in the water, and, and you know and enjoying the the Adriatic and um, the the old town and. We took her to the museum so she can see the history, some parts of the history, and she was tolerating that, I guess. Um, like she liked some of the parts, but you know, I think a lot of it is just kind of—it's too much for a toddler. Yeah, I remember when we used to go on family vacations. My dad would make us stop and read every single plaque wherever we went. So <laughs> now it's like an inside joke whenever we go somewhere. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, the, some of the stuff you they saw there, like some of the furniture that they have in the museum, which are the like the the, the ducal palace uh, of the city that had like the official like city furniture, um, is gorgeous. And so you look at it and like that, you can appreciate it without anything. But like it, it hits a little differently. We're like, yeah, this is not only is it beautiful, but it's also seven hundred years old, right? So it's like this this carved wood table is seven hundred years old. Yeah, we don't we don't have that in the U.S., so we don't quite get that, you know. It, it's we're barely seven hundred years old, not not even that the uh, you know Europeans arrived here. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a part of the thing that I've that history is part of what I've missed being here. Um, but I'm you know it's especially the more the more west you move, the less history there is, um, and there is there the re reminds me of that of an amazing joke from the the Steve Martin movie, L.A. Story, um, where he's giving the architectural tour of L.A. 
uh, and not to pick on LA. I just, it's a great <laughs> movie. Um, he goes, you know, this is the historic district of LA. Some of these houses are over 30 years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of those European towns, I don't know how they get cars to drive on them. They're so freaking narrow. Well, you just don't like, so, so Dubrovnik old town, just, you're not allowed. Yeah. Cars can't go in there. I believe um, it. So there's, there's, and if you get an Uber, there is uh, only like two gates at which they will drop you off. And so like even Uber is not allowed to go to all of the places, but like they, they can take you to this one gate and this other gate, and then you figure it out on your own afterwards. And I think that there's been, there was a proposal not that long ago to really kind of abolish cars from the whole entire downtown area, not just the old town and make, um, which they really should because like a monthly pass for the the bus there is 25 kuna, which is like four euros. So, you know, if, if you go there, you can just get a, you know, get a monthly bus pass for very little. Maybe you can make it, you know, I've always, you know, my proposal has always been when I've talked to the people over there is like, just make it 10 euros for a week. Nobody, no, no tourist is going to balk at that whatsoever. And then just give it for free to the residents, you know, and you'll still make more money and it'll be easier for everybody to live there because the traffic has become an absolute nightmare. And so I think they just need to bolster their uh, um, public transportation and just completely kill the car. <laughs> that could be coming um, with gas prices and everything else. So is there um, is there a, a fungal infection endemic back to your homeland? Anything that you can think of back? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Not that we know of. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that area is more known for like typhus and Bartonella Quintana, you know, uh, for back to like the World War One era. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Not none, no fungus that I can think of that that's there. Uh, but it's it's also possible that we just don't know it, right? <clears throat> right. So that begs the next question that, that and I told Sarah I wanted to talk about this question. So you know, there's all this talk about climate change. Um, climate change, not it, it isn't just rising water levels and mm -hmm. melting from melting glaciers and everything else. This is obviously going to change lots of things including potentially fungal infections oh absolutely no doubt so, so what, have, what uh, do you see yeah what do you think might happen here i mean we think of some of these you know i mentioned what's endemic in your area you know we kind of think desert southwest is where coxie you know paracoxies further south histos kind of all over but there's certain things that you see in higher prevalence mm -hmm. uh, is in certain areas but with climate differences and different changes in wet and dry we might see different things right right absolutely so so that's a great, that's a, that's an amazing question. And one that's kind of focused on a part of my work that I'm starting to build more and more and kind of trying to focus on more is that the climate is completely different than it used to be. Right. So I've lived here now in St. Louis for nine years and I have never seen the Missouri, Mississippi, sorry, freeze over. And I recently read a history book on St. Louis. And the reason why we built the first pedestrian bridge over the Mississippi is because every year people used to routinely walk over the Mississippi from Illinois to Missouri in order to sell their wares. And every year, several people would fall in because they would start to walk over too early or do it too late in the season and they would fall in the river. And, you know, ice cold river moving at like 40 miles an hour, you fall underneath the ice, you three seconds and you're, you're, you're one town over and you're dead. Um, so it's an amazing thing how that different is because I've never seen it freeze over. Right. And in the meantime, I've been here for nine years and we've had three 20 year floods, one century flood. And in this July on a Monday night to Tuesday morning, we got in two hours more than two months of rain in two hours, which resulted in amazing flash flooding on a Monday to Tuesday. And then Thursday, we got four inches of rain in a half hour, um, which is a record for St. Louis that flooded Central West End, an area that had never flooded in the known time 
of St. Louis, right? So the world is, there's no doubt that that's changing. And in the meantime, these fungi, 90 plus percent of their life cycle is environmental. They don't live in us most of their time. So of course it's going to change. So we actually have um, a manuscript out for review right now that's looking at the um, locations of endemic mycoses. And we're going to be looking at some of the other fungi. And and I can't go into the details because it's still embargoed, but <laughs> to 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 give you a spoiler alert, they are not where you've been taught they were. <laughs> Interesting. They are all, many different places than where you've thought where you've been taught that the endemics are. Interesting. Yeah, that'll be cool to see when you get that out. Yeah, and we actually started working with uh, a person who's a great mathematical modeler to try to do to try to understand what are the changes. Like, what is it? Is it something with the soil? Is it something with the rainfall? Is it flood events? Is it wildfires? Like, what is the what is the thing that is changing it for each one of these fungi? Uh, because we are not even if we stopped using fossil fuels today which we're not going to but if we did even in, you know if we did in the next two to three years uh we're still going to have experienced changes in our weather for the next 20 years um and we're going to need to know where things are where things are going to go <laughs> not just where they are now but where they're going to be in five years 10 years 15 years yeah, that answered some of my question because I guess I was curious, you know, because obviously moisture, wetness is you know helps some, and then they do they dry out then, and then you get spores that can blow around. And does human, not just human fossil fuels, but human transportation? I mean, obviously the world is a a different place, and we wouldn't have um, Ebola in the United States if people couldn't travel. So I don't yeah. know how much that plays a role too. Well, yeah, there was the only the only outbreak of coccidiomycosis in in Germany that ever happened was in an American um, military base, because they had jeeps that were used jeeps and vehicles that were used in in the desert for maneuvers and then brought over there and the dirt off of the vehicles kind of released in the field and where mechanics were working on they got coxie. Um, so like so that definitely happens, but. There's also this, um, you know, this desertification that's happening um, out in the uh, out in the West. You know, was it last year that last year we had the wildfires in Oregon? You know, the the lush green uh, verdant Oregon was having drought related wildfires, right? And so that's the kind of thing that we're we're experiencing, and, and I think we're not going to be able to answer that question simply because these are highly complex organisms and what leads to more outbreaks from coxie is going to be very different from histo and very different from blasto, very different from crypto, aspergillus, et cetera. Um, and I think what we're going to need to do is start to understand them for the complexity that they are and start to understand each one individually. And I know there's, um, and there's no doubt in my mind that they're going to, to be able to, take opportunities of changing climate because their spores are able to travel for very long periods of time. And all it takes is one or two to land and then they'll become endemic. So with your new project that you have that's embargoed right now, are you looking at taking that and like doing uh, predictive modeling yeah, so there's two components that we're planning on doing. One is um, an online we a website that anybody will be able to look up their county's rates of different fungi. And that's gonna be, I think, really helpful to clinicians um, as this is changing over time so that people can, you know, this patient comes from this area, that what fungi are there? Uh, the other thing is going to be a lot of that predictive modeling, exactly that. Try to look at the new endemic areas, areas where these fungi are now present, where they weren't present before. And then using uh, data that's available on soil uh, and data that's available on weather and see what has changed in those areas, right? Um, and kind of make an argument, well, the things that are changing consistently that are allowing for this to happen are probably the things that matter. So my hypothesis is that for histo, 
it's not so much the um, um, waterfall that matters as much as the flood events. I think it's the the the, the times when the rivers break their banks and uh, deposit this loamy, rich soil that leads to these outbreaks. And <clears throat> this is the, you know, um, the only time in my life was an event like that where I actually got a twofer diagnosis where a patient was actually referred to me for possible histoplasmosis. And they they thought they got it because they had a, a, a river that spilled and they got, a, they got like about three feet of mud in their house and they cleaned it out themselves, not a respirator. And uh, the whole time I'm talking to him, he's kind of giving me yes or no on some of the questions on the, on the diagnostics, on the, on the symptoms. And his wife is going the whole time like, yeah, but I got it. Yeah, but I got it. And she had all the symptoms of disseminated histo. And um, we literally like just added her to my schedule while she was sitting in the room and we <laughs> turned her into another visit. And lo and behold, we diagnosed her that day with disseminated histo along with her husband. And they got to spend uh, a nice two weeks together in the same house, uh, both on Amazon. <laughs> Good times. Wait, just IV bonding, right? Yeah, they were just, and it was just this incredible experience. And, and that's the only time I've actually gotten like two people at the same time in the same family. Um, and I really do think that that it's that loamy rich soil that, that Histo really likes that probably is that. And so that's where we're going to start looking around like rivers and, and especially because the, the good thing about floods is that they're actually really well captured in data uh, because insurance companies have been capturing that for, for eons. And as a result, now we, it's being tracked by other entities as well. Fungal infections aren't reportable in all States though, are they? So getting clinical information on many of these is probably nearly impossible. I mean, I know from non-tuberculous mycobacterial thing, one of the things we'd love to have is make them all be reportable or have them go to a reference lab where at least you can pull data from, but we don't know what's where because it's not reported. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great answer. And yeah, they're not. And, uh, you know, the CDC, we've been having this conversation that mycosis branch of the CDC has wanted to make them reportable forever, but, you know, they rely on state labs and our state health departments and the state health departments have other priorities and they're not able to always do that so it doesn't happen it's reportable so some of them are reportable in some of the states mm -hmm. uh, but certainly it isn't everywhere um, but i think the way we build that incidence is through large administrative data and so you look for uh, large administrative data sets that have uh, good geographic locations and you do all 50 states which is what we did um, and, you know, there, there's definitely easy to do kind of um, studies that, that can give you that answer. It's very cool. I can't wait to see how this all turns out. I'm very excited. I can just imagine like a pandemic movie and there's the scientist is pointing at the screen going, there's there's an endemic fungus in this county <laughs> and nobody <laughs> is listening to them. <laughs> It's definitely true. So, you know, there was a part of the, um, a colleague that I met on Twitter, uh, who, who kind of worked in the, the Ozarks area, like he came there and he was like, there is no history, there's no blasto here, is what he was told. And then he diagnosed like five of them over a course of like six months, he diagnosed like five blastos. And like every time he did that, he would text me and, and be like, hey, am I crazy or is this blasto? I'm like, that's blasto. Um, <laughs> and he he was he was doing this for like five years. And then like we did this big data set analysis and we found that sure enough, three or four, him, his county and the three or four counties around him, tons of blasto. But everybody was telling him there wasn't. It's just, it. it's one of those things that I think is a, big problem for mycology is that it is it is the most common rare disease in the world um and but everybody thinks it's not common so we don't test for it so we don't see it um and it's it's not uncommon when we do these retrospective data pulls through even you know some of the best hospitals in the world um that we find plenty of patients where the culture where the culture is positive 48 hours 72 hours after they're dead and then you go back through it and like they've had symptoms for six months. 
Yeah, crazy stuff. I think the, the, the big question for you is in the movie, who is going to play Dr. Speck? Ooh. So if like if I can pick who would play me, um I would love to see either Benedict Cumberbatch. That would be good. Brandon Fraser. Brandon Fraser? Yeah. I love Brandon Fraser. Yeah, he's a little older than you though, isn't he? He is, but that's okay. Yeah. Maybe I was I thinking him. I was thinking yeah. like Andrew Garfield. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. He he seems like he could play a scientist pretty well, I think. Cumberbatch could certainly do it too. He He's just brilliant, yeah. Oh yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like if I can like flatter myself and like pick the person I would love to portray me, it would definitely be better than Cumberbatch. Just because he's I, I I love how good he is. Or if I can go for another person, it would be David Tennant. Yep. I you know, I loved him as Doctor Who. Um, and then, what is that Marvel series on Netflix? Jessica Jones? Yep. He was such a good villain in that series. It was he was great. the greatest villain of all greatest villains of all yes. time. He he did the thing that Anthony Hawkins did not do well in Silence of the Lambs. Like, so everybody was like, oh, it's scary. I'm like, he wasn't that great. He hammed it up way too much. Um, but, like, David Tennant was bone chillingly scary in that movie and i and in those in that series i never saw him as a scary person and then he was also brilliant in broad church so yeah, yeah. I, those would be like my two people if i could pick like who who it would be like the biggest flattery of my ego for people to like incredible actors it would be david tennant and Benedict cumberbatch well, now you just got to get the data and get the get the story, and somebody will somebody will uh, somebody will pick it up. I mean, they they did a movie about a little monkey in a in a military helicopter back in the '80s. That outbreak movie, you guys have probably seen that, right? Yeah, it's a it's a great. I I, I love that movie, but I also used to love. Uh, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. He's yeah. A movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it could happen. Yeah, it so when, I when you write your next paper, you could write the 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 little script for the movie. Right, and I'll just send it straight to like Warner Brothers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just add David Tennant in as a, an author <laughs> and see I, what happens. I will give him executive producer credit. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever he wants, if he's one, if he's willing to do the project. Oh, that's too funny. So. Um, what advice do you have for providers on helping to recognize fungal diseases? You know, the, the thing about fungal diseases that, is that a lot of them are pleomorphic, right? So currently in our data set, when we looked at histo, 40% of people were immunocompetent. So you can't go by the immune status. Um, they hide, they're difficult to diagnose. And so what I always would say is keep, keep them on your differential um, and the the book that I think I would recommend for every physician, uh, not just for fungal diseases, but I think they would help them overall as clinicians, um, is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's an it's the best non medical book um, that has ever helped me become a better doctor. Uh, it's written by Daniel Kahneman, and it's it's about change. It's about how you how people think. Um, and in medicine, we do a lot of heuristics and that's okay because we have to, right? Um, because we go through, we make so many decisions in a single given point in a single day that if you don't do heuristics, you won't get through your day. Um, and you know, if you have a person who's had a heart attack in the past, has high blood pressure, doesn't take their meds and they come in with swollen legs, it's probably CHF. Um, and it's reasonable to work on that approach, but what I think distinguishes a good doctor from a truly great doctor is the is knowing when to move away from that heuristic and start moving into a systematic form of thought. Um, it's when you start to decide, it's when you, you're already following this path, you're following this path, and then just the patient isn't quite behaving the way you would expect that person to behave, right? 
Um, you're shooting them for a thing, but they're not responding. And that's the moment to step back and reevaluate everything that you've assumed and start from scratch because that's the moment where you're going to make your diagnosis of fungal infection, right? Because most of them are going to present as a community-acquired pneumonia. And you're not going to send off ex extensive fungal testing on every community-acquired pneumonia. That's probably not appropriate. But if you have a community-acquired pneumonia that failed the first round of antibiotics, you're probably not going to get that much by giving a course of Leviquin when Augmentin didn't work, right? Like, that's a pretty similar spectrum of activity in a community-acquired pneumonia, right? And so... Um, that's the moment where you start thinking about it. And we're actually working now with the CDC um, to, to do a campaign, literally doing that. Um, it's to get patient people, primary care providers predominantly, but all fit clinicians to start to think of fungal infections earlier. Um, they don't need to get their fourth antibiotic by the time you start to think that that pneumonia may not be bacterial, right? Um, and it's that kind of stuff that you, that is really the way we need to move forward. Um, and I don't, if, if I get to the point where the average person who is diagnosed with histo has only received two courses of antibiotics, I will be a happy man. I, I can say the same thing about non-tuberculous mycobacteria. I, same yeah. thing. I don't know how many courses of the, my main concern is, is how much monotherapy with macrolide did they get in the course of this thing is the thing. At least you don't have to worry about that um, Absolutely, yeah. in your situation. And the other thing that's crazy is it's like these people will have recurrent pneumonias and, you know, and they'll be diagnosed either clinically or maybe they'll have a little infiltrate on a chest X-ray. You can't get out of an emergency room without getting a CT scan or something. Why can't we get CT scans on people that have recurrent pneumonias? I agree. You know, a good CT scan, uh, you know, and I think that that it's, it's, it's that thing. It's, it's getting people to, to realize that fungus isn't rare. You know, mm -hmm. fungus is not rare. We keep saying it's rare and we keep saying it's rare, but it's not rare. Um, we, part of this thing that we, uh, the analysis that we did is that we looked at how many states in the United States have a county, at least one county, that has a rate of histoplasmosis that is higher than the rate of pulmonary embolism because everybody gets a D-dimer for everything in the emergency room, right? And they get a CT scan at the drop of a hat for a PE. And the, the answer is almost 40 states. <laughs> and for some states, the rate is way higher than pulmonary embolism, right? The rate of histoplasmosis in St. Louis is way above pulmonary embolism. It's two orders of magnitude above pulmonary embolism. But we don't, we still, we still think of a histo as a rare disease, right? But PE is something that's on top of our uh, differential all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we need to, to be aware of is that we are not rare. And um, one of the things that I've been working on with some folks um, at the, from, from the COXI world and, and from the private world is that I'm trying to build a, a group of patients who have survived fungal infections so that they can do a few things so that they can put together a group um, so they can advocate for themselves so that it, because it's very disingenuous when I'm saying we need more research for mycology, right? I'm saying, hey, give me more grants. Uh, but it's very different when a patient who has lived through this or a person who has lost a loved one to a fungal infection can come to their senator and say, hey, we are spending less on this disease that kills tens of thousands of people than we do on this rare cancer that on average kills like three people a year. And that's, those are real numbers, right? Like the amount of money we spend on mycology and public research is nothing. It's virtually nothing if we talk about clinical mycology. And so that's one of the things I want them to, I'm hoping this group to be able to do. But the other thing I'm hoping for this group to be able to do is to inform us, um, inform us as researchers. I want patient to tell us, I to be able to say to researchers, I don't care about this protein that you're talking about. Or 
my real problem living with this disease is X. Help me fix X. And I think that that's something that we should have all learned that lesson from the HIV world. Um, but I don't think we have. And it, it's a little bit difficult because then you're, you've been spending all this time thinking like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And the patient tells you, we don't care. And that's hard. But at the same time, it's, it's also easy because they're telling you what you should write your grant about. They're giving you the study idea. And I've had several patients in my clinic who are wonderful, who have literally told me like, this is the thing that's a problem for me. Can you help me fix it? And then that's led to actual studies that have then been published and highly cited. So we need to involve the patients into our research more because they're the ones who are living with this or who survived this or have lost loved ones to this. So we need them involved. Yeah, I know many of our um, NTM uh, studies that we're doing involve quality of life measures and all these other questions that people have to answer, which I think at the end of the day, you know, at least in the NTM world, we may not cure you, but if you're better and you can get up and do things and you're not, you know, losing weight and coughing all the time, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we're at for wins at this point in time. Yeah. And I think that, but that's, that's a real win, right? Yeah. If, if, if you can get up and go shopping, that's a different life than if you're virtually bed bound because of your fatigue and your cough, right? That's a different world. And I think that that's something that we need to accept. And I think in ID, we've been a little spoiled by how good we've been for the last century almost now. You know, we've, we've taken these things, you know, we've had these big, big wins like sanitation that's changed the world, right? Vaccinations changed the world. Antibiotics, they, they took these like widowmaker diseases and turned them into nothings you know and that's an amazing thing that we've done and I, I hear a lot of id physicians tell me like oh well if it doesn't decrease mortality by at least 15 percent in id it doesn't matter i'm like i'm sorry for using my language bullshit that matters right if i can decrease somebody's mortality by two percent for uh for heart attacks and that matters why doesn't it matter for pneumonia why doesn't it matter for for nectarizing fasciitis, 2% is 2%, right? And we are, we are living in this world of physicians don't save lives, we adjust probabilities. And the better a physician you have, the more of an adjustment they get in your probability. You may do all the things right and people will still die. You may do all the things wrong and they still live, but on average treating many, many people, you'll make a big difference. And how we make that difference doesn't is not field specific. And so we need to accept smaller changes in ID as being valid. Well, you look at what the, the, the thing in oncology now is, you know, checkpoint inhibitors and JAK2 uh, mutation medications and whatever. They're really not curing people, but they're letting them live their lives and live their lives longer and, and, and those kinds of things. And I, I agree. I mean, these aren't, I don't even know. I mean, you may know this. I mean, if somebody has this acute disseminated histo and they're an immune competent person, but they're sick and you treat them for a while, you give them Amazon, give them whatever oral azole you want to give them. Are you really curing them? Or are you beating it down enough that, hey, um, you know, now their immune system can get control of it, but it could still be a problem later. You, uh, uh... It's hard to know. Um, I think that... Uh... I would say that in the immunocompetent population, I, I'm probably curing it. Um, or at the very least, we beat it down so much that it never comes back ever again. And I think that's a good enough answer for me. You know, if you if you did uh, if if you cured it for somebody and then they after they passed away, you did like a full body DNA extraction, would you find some histo DNA? Maybe, uh, maybe you would. Um, but we don't see it tend to come back. Uh, very often. Um, but it does happen in some in some situations, especially TNF inhibitor uh, patients. That's where I see a lot of my recurrences. Um, but I think the really um, interesting thing is to really kind of accept what we really focus on the patient experience, right? Because um, if you tell me you have this really rare cancer and I can give you this chemotherapy that's going to be really rough for the next four weeks or four months 
and you have a 70% chance of cure. Or I can give you this pill that's one pill once a day, and you're going to take it for the rest of your life. It's virtually going to have no side effects. Uh, you're going to have cancer. There's no doubt. We'll be testing you once every three months, and we're going to find cancer every time. But you're going to live a normal life. I am taking that pill every time. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, being disease-free means nothing. It's how it affects your life yep. that matters. Agreed. And a great, even the most extreme example of that is curing HIV, right? We can cure HIV in some people, but virtually nobody would want to take the cure. The, right. you know, the cure is so much worse than just taking your pill. Yep. And make it easy to do the right thing, right? Right. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I learned so much today. Do you guys have anything else before we wrap it up? Well, next time we have uh, Dr. Speck on, I want to talk to him about ways we can facilitate or make diagnosis of these fungal infections easier because it's not simple and straightforward. And I think that's a hindrance to why people get four antibiotic courses before they come and see somebody to get a diagnosis. So I want to talk about the next generation of ways we can do that outside of having to do a biopsy or a bronch and get tissue and cultures and wait two weeks or three weeks. So I'm going to just leave this with a hint for everybody. And I'm going to just give you a name of a person and I want everybody who's listening to this to go and read her papers because this is the future of mycology. And I think this might be the future of much of ID diagnostics. Most people just don't know it yet. Um, and the name is Sophia Ku. She's at Brigham and Women's. She is an incredible scientist. And I think she's going to revolutionize the world. Awesome. So everybody go out and search that up and look at her research. Please do, because she definitely deserves people reading her papers. Well, thank you for joining us. you have any questions for us now or anything uh, that we didn't kind of hit on? We kind of were wide ranging here all the way from (laughs) um, Croatia to different fungal infections to who was going to be acting for you in your in your movie. (laughs) Oh, you know me. I, I, I'm freewheeling. Very. <laughs> That's um, the way we like it here. <laughs> you know, honestly, um, yeah, I don't have any questions for you guys. Thank you for having me back on. Um, always happy to, uh, to talk more about fungus because, again, it, it doesn't get the uh, the light of day that it deserves. Yeah, we'll definitely do it again. I mean, and in the future, if uh, you know, if you have colleagues and you want to get on and have some. Uh, some debates on where things are going or whatever. We'd love to facilitate that as well. Cause I think that we've had some, some panels on here with questions coming in and that it's been, it's been a good time. Sure. Yeah. I think that'd be fun. We can do that. Awesome. All right. For all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for this episode of dirty drinks. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks. And thank you again, Dr. Speck, for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.